Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So as I stated earlier, we're at the fourth class of our, I think it's 31 class structured study of jhana meditation. And this is the third class on the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and Mark is here for the first time. Uh, you've been around the website a little bit. And so this is the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta is where the Buddha teaches us how to meditate and that's the beginning portion and we just did that we're mindful of the breath arising and passing away we're mindful that feelings arise and pass away thoughts arise and pass away and the quality of our mind is always changing it arises and passes away as does all phenomena as does our life our life arises and it passes away so the breath is both metaphor <laughs> for all existence because it has that characteristic of arising and passing away and so it's the it's the um, the anchor of our Dhamma practice. In other words, we practice jhana meditation to increase concentration, so that through that increased concentration, we're able to hold in mind these other seven factors, which makes a complete eightfold path, which is what we integrate and employ to awaken or gain full human maturity. And the rest of the Satipatthana Sutta is usually misunderstood but it's simply how to apply the Dhamma, uh, how to apply concentration within the, the, the broader framework of the Eightfold Path, excuse me. And so I'm just gonna to touch on something that Jen taught last week just to lead into where we're going, but this relates to something called the five clinging aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. These are the five qualities that every human being has. The problem with a, with a human being who is ignorant of these four noble truths is we cling these aggregates together and decide that is our experience. So we, because of what arises and passes away in form, we take form as self. Because this form generates feelings, we use those feelings to validate what we think this form should or must be or has to be. And we do the same thing with thoughts. And because of the misunderstanding that the form, our feelings, or my thoughts define me in a permanent way leads to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is the quality of mind that is impacted by the misunderstanding of the first three foundations. Taking this personal, defining my life by how I feel or what I think about how I feel, all lacking the understanding that is generated through Four Noble Truths. Another way of saying that is, when I'm perceiving the world, and this leads directly to today's sutta, when I'm perceiving the world through my human senses, but a mind that is that has a view that is skewed, it's not seeing reality accurately, it's not seeing this in relation to the world, then everything that follows, every conclusion that follows from that, every determination that follows from that, every experience that follows from that initial ignorance is clouded by that initial ignorance. Do, do, do you understand that, Mark? Does that make sense to you? Yes. 
You can go, man. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand it. Like, and that, that is basically it. But to say all of that, we can say we don't take life personally because we understand it. We understand that nothing is personal. Why? How do I know that nothing is personal in this world? How do I know, Jen? Put you on the spot. Whoa. How do you know? And put her on the spot. It was no, unfair. It's okay. You sure? <laughs> I really stuck it to you. <laughs> how do I know? How do I know that it's not? Well, Nothing is personal because I, because of the four noble truths. Because yeah. there is it's, stress, um, and if I take that stress personally, it will contribute to more suffering. Yeah. And the way out is through the eightfold path. Yeah. So if I continue to develop a calm and peaceful mind and concentration, I will start to understand what I really am or what is really occurring in this world, in this body, in this world, and not take it personally. Yeah. That's it. I asked the right person. <laughs> and if, if it were personal, then we could do something about it. Oh, there we go. That was the right answer. Hmm. <laughs> And so we could control it, but we can't. Yeah, and and, and if, if I if I don't have control over something, yeah. it can't be me. How could it be me? And so we find out we don't have any control over our bodies, and we don't have hardly any control over what happens during this life. We have a, a minimal amount of control, but along the way, we're going to get sick. Yeah. We're going to age. We're going to die, and in that time frame, birth to death will likely experience, if, we, if it's long enough, all kinds of things that are unpleasant and that we may take personally, except now we understand that none of it is personal because it arises and passes away. Mm. So how could anything, to boil what Jen said down to that, anything that is impermanent has to be not me. How could it? How could anything in, the, in a world that nothing is permanent be permanent simply because I insist it is, meaning my view of self? And it's, it is this permanent view that we carry from one moment to the next that comes up against life because life is impermanent. Everything's changing. And when we develop the Dhamma to the point where we're not taking anything personal, we are simply a reference point to what's occurring. And so our minds are calm and at peace and we're able to meet this moment or life as it occurs rather than influence from past past experiences now forming our view of what this moment should be but that moment is always the carrot that we're placing on our stick it's always in front of us it always is and has to generate greed because we're always grasping after a better me a new me a safer me a richer me you know a handsomer me a prettier me always something that's going to better me in fact we're taught that the whole point of life is to, is to get better and better and better, to be more successful and get a whole big pile of stuff before you go. The problem with that is that big pile of stuff is gone when you go. So this is just, I'm just going to read this briefly to lead into today's sutta, but Jen touched on this Tuesday. The Buddha's words, Furthermore, one remains mindful of the quality of mind in reference to the five clinging aggregates. Again, we remain mindful of mind in reference to these these qualities. What is mindfulness in this sense? It's a very refined mindfulness rooted in concentration that is dispassionate. 
It's not the modern mindfulness movement that just teaches grasp after whatever you're looking at, which is just creates more stress. Mindfulness means we have an understanding that this is not me. Remain mindful of form and the arising and passing away of form. Remain mindful of feelings, thoughts, and, um, and fabrications in consciousness arising and passing away, the five clinging aggregates. And then the Buddha says, in this way, one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates and the arising and passing away of the five clinging aggregates, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. That is the awakened state. So these five clinging aggregates, once awakened, are simply what constitutes me. I have a form. This form has consciousness. It thinks. And that that thinking form creates perceptions now rooted in reality. And so the, there, there's no fabrication form. And that perception now is simply feeding a consciousness that is resting in understanding. So the same thing is here, but it's now awakened. And again, think about this. Most people come to Buddhism thinking there's some kind of uh, magical transformation that either takes place in this life, creating something that was never here before, or if you do everything right, you'll get some reward at some future date, usually eons in the future. Again, something the Buddha didn't teach. He taught that we're human beings, we have a human life, and that's it. Any speculation beyond that point is pure speculation. One can never know, and nobody ever knows. But if there's anything past death, it's none of our concern because we can't know and we can't get there. The only way we can get there is by dying, and that ends the human experience, which ends the opportunity, the only real opportunity we have that's of any value, to awaken and understand what this human life actually means. Why? So I can live it. So I can actually be present for it. And in that way, each and every moment has deep meaning. I don't need this wonderful present moment to be living my life and a big pile of gold. This present moment is enough. By not clinging to anything in the world in this way is how one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates, the personal experience of suffering in and of itself. Again, in and of <coughs> itself means I'm not, I'm not putting any value on this. It's just what is arising and passing away. So this leads to a section of the Satipatthana Sutta called Mindfulness of the Sixth Sense Base. So we all have this. This is how we interpret the world. The world comes in contact with us through our Sixth Sense Base, our five physical senses and the Sixth Sense of Consciousness. We have to have something that is interpreting what's coming through our senses. And if what is coming through our senses is interpreted by a mind rooted in ignorance, then this experience of this moment and each and every moment will be tinged by that ignorance or colored by that ignorance, framed by that ignorance in such a way that we don't realize what's actually occurring, which is, has nothing to do with me. But it is this life that I'm living. And now finally I have a way to live it without the need for it to be any different for me to stop judging myself or the world, or the people in the world, in any harsh way. How do I do that? Because I understand that everything changes and nothing is personal. Furthermore, one remains mindful of the quality of mind in reference to this sixth sense base. Quality of mind in reference to this. This is how I. This is how I. This is how I refer the world to myself. I'm simply a reference point to what's occurring. Remain mindful of the I form. In the clinging that 
that arises from the I form. So there's a potential here for my senses to cling. And I use my senses to do that. Be mindful of it. Notice the Buddha doesn't say, and if you find out that your I form is clinging to something, you find something agreeable and you want more of it, or you find something distasteful and you don't want anything of it. That clinging to it is the way to, to control the situation when all that we're doing is now using my senses to validate my own ignorance, that I should do something about this, that I should, that this is, that this is a beautiful flower and I have to have more flowers because they look beautiful and they also feed that sense of, 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 uh, of aroma. They smell wonderful. So let me get, always have flowers in my life. And what happens when they wilt? I'm disappointed because everything is tied up in that flower. I'm clinging to that flower to define my life. And of course, the flower is impermanent. But everything that I cling to is impermanent. It could be a big house, a lot of money, a lot of relationships, or one relationship, or a Dharma practice that doesn't really lead anywhere, but it's because it's mine, I'm going to practice it, which is what I did for many years. Because I had so identified with something that, to me now, it was obviously not suiting me. It was just distracting me and causing for further confusion and frustration. Excuse me. But even then I wouldn't let it go because I was associated with it. I was a this type of practitioner or that type of practitioner. I, was, I took my vows in a certain uh, Tibetan school, so I was that. And the truth of the matter was, as long as that is, still true, is I am none of those things and I could never be a permanent anything. But what I can be is someone who understands what this moment brings, which is impermanence. And everything else that goes along with my life. But understanding first impermanence, then I don't grasp after all the things that life brings me. And I can simply be present for a wonderful flower or maybe a, a, a fallow field, but understand what was there and be able to say, well, that's a wonderful opportunity for more crops. Again, I might be sounding a little silly, but my mind is not determined what is occurring in this moment. What is occurring in this moment is determining what's occurring in this moment. Period. Not what. This is what is. This is my Dharma practice. Be mindful of... of Excuse me. Be mindful of the arising of clinging to the I form. Be mindful that when clinging to the I form is completely abandoned, clinging to the I form will not arise in the future. Excuse me. And what is the Buddha promising here? That once we understand and stop clinging to the I form completely through understanding four noble truths, it will never happen again. We will never again cling anything to anything else in the world. How does that happen? How does it happen in this chaotic, haphazard world? How can I have that level of assurance that I will no longer cling to anything that might cause me stress? The Buddha calls that inner poise because we know, because we have had the experience of abandoning all of our ignorance, what that feels like, what it looks like, what to think about it, through our own direct experience. It's not speculative. It's not magical. And so it's something that we can rely on because each and every moment I can bring it into this moment. Yeah, or I can decide not to 
And then this moment could easily fall back into whatever, whatever it was before. But because I continue within the Dhamma, I got a call a few years ago that was one of the most interesting and I think important calls I ever got, although I didn't understand it quite at the time. And this student who was new and was a, a little, I could sense some agitation in their voice, said, asked me the question, why did the Buddha keep meditating after he awakened? And there's a lot that's in that question, isn't it? He was inferring that meditation was something to overcome and get to someplace. And once there, you just abandon it. Of course, Siddhartha, upon his awakening, now established in deep concentration, would naturally do everything he could for the remaining 45 years of his life to maintain that concentration. So then it's just a natural progression of an awakened human being, isn't it? We meditate, we live our lives within the framework of the Eightfold Path, and occasionally we'll have a conversation, or maybe, if we're fortunate enough, we'll have a class with other Dhamma practitioners. <clears throat> and in that way, I am now associating myself with something that is rooted in reality. Does everybody understand that? Anybody not? Mark, are you following me? Good. Is there a requirement to stay in right view to continue practicing? Please say that again. Is Louder. There, is there a requirement to even the Buddha continue to practice to stay in right view? Yes. Everybody hear what David said? David said, is it a requirement of the Buddha? Even the Buddha to continue practicing regardless of his enlightenment to stay in right view? Yes, and in that way, David said that the Buddha would continue to practice in order to stay in right view. And the answer is yes, of course. But the practice itself then, not but, right view is simply an ongoing process that is maintained now by Dhamma practice, which is simply a natural progression of an awakened human being. It's not a chore to do. And again, we can fall into that, like I'm going to walk the Eightfold Path until I don't lead it, need it anymore, and then I can get back on the crooked path and really enjoy my life. It doesn't work that way. This is the lifetime path that we develop so that we can maintain a calm and peaceful mind and be present. I mean, this is the key to be present for each and every moment of my life instead of what it was like before, always thrown into the future because I was reacting to the moment due to the past that I was dragging into this moment, Rob. Once you have that full understanding, as, as the Buddha did, um, he had no reason to go back to yeah. no. not understanding yeah. because he clearly sees that the... Uh, the contribution to to his suffering that he made, why why return? You know, why stick why yeah. stick another arrow in there? Yeah, and uh, and again, those questions are rooted in someone who simply doesn't understand and sees this as a goal to achieve and then put aside, rather than something to develop as a lifetime practice, something that I'll be doing naturally each and every moment of my life. Um, and so, this is how an awakened human being simply lives their life. You know, it, it's not. Um, we naturally remain mindful of all of our senses because our mind, and again, how do we do it? First, we need some concentration so that we actually know what's going on. When the Buddha awakened, he touched the ground with his right hand. Some of you may have seen the pose and he's holding his left hand pointed towards the sky, meaning his finger down is I've overcome the earth. And then he says, there's nothing left within me. 
to provoke, meaning to generate another moment rooted in ignorance. One of the most profound sayings ever uttered, because it's the whole point. And we, as the Buddha teaches, we become as rightly self-awakened as he does. And so there's nothing left within us to provoke another moment or to generate another moment rooted in ignorance. We're simply living our life as a reference point to what's occurring. Thank you, great teachers. So be mindful that when clinging to the eye, ear, nose, uh, body, tactile, sense, face, taste, sense, taste, form, when those forms are completely abandoned, clinging to those forms will not arise in the future. So now what happens at that point in my life that I've gone past that? So now my senses, my five physical senses, are simply in- interpreting what's occurring in their appropriate way, meaning they're, they're interpreting life as life occurs. And so if I just got news that a loved one dies, I don't, I'm not a, a stoic. I'm just, I don't, it's not just grim determination that I understand this moment, that I don't understand stress and suffering in the way that, yeah, it just happens and I can overcome it through my mind. I understand it with a great gentle and supple mind. How do I understand it? Through understanding my own suffering. Not, not avoiding it, but also not, in an, in an overly analytical way, embracing it. Where, where I'm saying that with emphasis because I've heard it taught. You have to embrace your suffering. No, we don't, under, we don't embrace it. We don't abandon we don't, we don't ignore it. We understand it. In order to understand it, we have to, have, we have to allow ourselves to have the experience of it first, recognize this is stress arising. This is not me. This is not mine. In that moment, abandon it. How? Through concentration because we don't go past that point anymore. And so we're contributing to that moment where we will not be provoked anymore. And that is Dhamma practice. And we get there rather quickly as long as we continue with Dhamma practice. And and in this sutta and in other suttas, there's guarantees that Siddhartha offers us. That if we would just do this a certain amount of time as it's presented that within about seven years, or maybe the Buddha says maybe six, or maybe five, or four, or three, or two, or maybe just a couple of weeks. And the Buddha is saying that out of his own experience, not because he's hanging a carrot, a carrot in front of us, because he saw it occur to us. And so we say it to you. You awaken in this lifetime. It's the purpose of the Dhamma. It has nothing to do about anything in the future. There's nothing speculative. It's just do this, and this will happen. So the Buddha concludes this by, again, be mindful that this is occurring to us. Be mindful. Hold it in mind. That is a dispassionate mindfulness. Then the Buddha says, in this way, one remains mindful of the sixth sense space and the arising and the passing away of the sixth sense space. Two components. I have this, and it arises and passes away. It's impermanent. Independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. I've extricated myself from all the things that I've gotten myself. <laughs> this is another. This is another fine mess you've gotten me into. <laughs> Two people remember that, the three stooges, the greatest dharma practitioners of all time. By the way, <laughs> I thought it was uh, Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. That's right, Laurel and Hardy. 
<clears throat> independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. So all the fine messes that we might have made in our lives, we don't have to cling to them anymore because they're impermanent. And as we move through our life now as an awakened human being, we simply won't be making those messes anymore. And so we don't have to get into that. What's going to happen next? As we develop and integrate the Eightfold Path, we gain what the Buddha would call inner poise because we get to the point where we realize there's nothing left within me to provoke that moment rooted in ignorance, meaning there's nothing left within me that will contribute to my stress or any stress of anyone in the world or any suffering in the world. I know I'm good to go. And that is the most liberating understanding anybody can have that you're, you are now incapable of causing harm for yourself or others. That's liberation. That's freedom. And that's the only liberation or freedom we can ever expect as a human being. But think about it. Think about what the quality of your life would be if you know that you will always be making decisions that are rooted in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Resting in right view with a strong right intention to remain calm and peaceful in this moment. And how do we do that? Again, with the, with the concentration factors of the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness that we're talking about here, and right meditation that we practice each and every day, twice a day. Independent of and not clinging anything of this into the world. Again, no preferences. We don't need to go on Twitter 15 times a day telling people about all the things that we like and that came into our life today. We'll recognize the eye-making that is inherent in modern human life, recognize where we're abandoning that, where, where we're developing or maintaining that, abandon it, and so our lives naturally become much more simpler and quieter. The Buddha concludes that by saying, this is how one remains mindful of the sixth sense space in and of itself. Remain mindful of and independent of clinging this to anything. And this is independent of anything in the world. Think about that. All of you people that grew up mine and Ram's age or after with the notion that we're on the verge of a new age of Aquarius. We're dawning. We're, we're, we're going to um, awaken to one unity consciousness where all things are resolved into this one giant mind. The Buddha said, nonsense. <laughs> Maybe it'll happen, but it's not part of the human experience that's occurring right now. And he taught this, this particular sutta, to remind us that we are individual beings. We're not part of a collective, and so we're not a savior. The only lives we can save is our own. And really the only thing we can do is awaken. And so that's, that's the, that's the uh, extent of salvation that's available to human beings. If there's some kind of salvation beyond simply understanding what it means to be a human being, it's beyond the plane of existence. It's not here. It's not for us to understand. If we're practicing the Buddha's Dhamma. If you believe in something that needs to be speculative, that you need to cling to, that's fine. It's simply not part of this practice. That's all. It's not right, it's not wrong. It doesn't make people that want to believe in magic and live their life based on magic and mysticism and speculation that they shouldn't do it. Of course they should if that's what they want to do. My parents lived that life their entire life. Most of us know people that are living that life. Everybody has that choice. 
But we also have that choice. And we do not have to associate with others if we choose not to. What does that mean? It means we can be friends with everyone. We can be in a family situation that everybody's practicing something different and live harmoniously. How? Because we don't take any of that personal, including what other people are practicing. This is simply what we do. That's it. And it needs no other qualification or justification, does it? We're adult human beings. We can decide how to think and how to act. And if you can actually decide that for yourself, that it's up to you, and you have the framework of the Eightfold Path, you will truly be harmless in the world. I will say from my own understanding that if you don't do this, from what I've seen from people that don't do this, there's the possibility that you're going to create great havoc in the world. You likely won't. Most people don't. My parents didn't. What happened to me, though, was that living in that same family, I found their beliefs to be unacceptable at some point. They didn't make sense, and so I looked for something else. It wasn't easy in the beginning to break out of that association until I realized that I wasn't leaving anybody behind. And as I developed the Dhamma, my family became much closer to me than ever before. They didn't really understand why, but I did. You know, because I stopped insisting that they be something other than they were. And again, just as a just to make the point a practical matter, my older sister got into her mind that my father wasn't the, he wasn't the world's perfect father, and so she developed a resentment against him that went from her teenage years till she passed just before he passed. Where I saw my dad eventually, and this happened twenty one years before he died. I remember when it happened on his eightieth birthday, when I realized that leaving his house that day, feeling this might be the last time I ever see him alive, which was starting to occur a lot, <laughs> and would happen every day I saw him for 20 years, uh, that this is the last time I saw him, made me start thinking, do I want to keep thinking about him in this way, that he needs to be different? And I was relatively new in my Dhamma practice, but it had an influence on this. And my thought was, no, I don't want to keep having this relationship with him. He is my father. He's not going to change. He's a pretty good guy. And that changed my relationship on the spot. And he felt it. And we had conversations after that that we never had before. Just about, he never talked about things. He was a bombardier in World War II. He never talked about what that was like. And it was awful for him because he knew he was dropping bombs on his relatives in Germany. He was German. But he did it because he felt he had to do it. But he never talked about it until towards the end of his life. And I asked him plenty of questions. My point is, that, it, that this simple Dhamma brought me closer to a man that I'm so grateful for. And on his death, upon his death, when I went and looked at him in the box, I was complete. I, didn't, I wasn't wailing like some of the people were. And I was, I was as profoundly sad as I ever was in my life, but I was complete. And the only thing I felt was deep admiration for having known this man. And a, a, a level of... Uh, Great fortune, I would say. So I, I hope I'm explaining this well, that, that we come in contact with the world through our senses. This is how we're designed as human beings. We can't do it any other way. And it is through the senses that we interpret what's occurring. If what is interpreted by what's occurring is rooted in the wisdom of the Eightfold Path, I'm good to go. And if it's not, if I find myself reacting in some way in this, mat, in, in this moment, taking it personally, as a Dhamma practitioner, I know exactly what to do in this moment. What is it, Rob? Take another breath. Take another breath. Remind ourselves that this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am.
and take another breath and get on with your life. And in that way, we remain calm and peaceful. So I want to start with, with Mark. What do you think about your first class here? I know you, it's a lot of words. It might be overwhelming, but maybe not. I think it's amazing. It's powerful, extremely powerful. And um, I just, you know, I mean, I obviously have a lot to learn and study, but yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. And does it, does it, am I painting the picture clear enough that you can see where we're going? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, 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 and, and that's all that you really need and just continue with your practice. You know, so it, um, I, how long are you meditating now? If On I can and ask. off for, I don't know, maybe two, two or three years. Not consistently, but... And how, about how long do you meditate for? Maybe 10 minutes. Good. So um, are, you, are you doing that once or twice a day? Just once a day. And probably not every day yet? Not every day. No. And again, I, I'm going to, like the other three people and everybody on screen knows, I'll, I might ask you questions at times that are very personal. Just say you don't want to answer. <laughs> You're not required to answer anything I ask you. Um, so uh, what I would suggest is use the guided meditations that are on the website because they contain the same verbiage that you just heard, which relate to the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddhist instructions on meditation. Um, and start with five minutes, but twice a day. And if you can do that as soon as you get up and you know, do whatever you got to and sit, and then about 12 hours later, meaning it's better if it's not right before you go to sleep at night because you tend to want to get through it and go to bed. Uh, so yeah, a couple hours before you, you go in at night. So if you can do that, start with five minutes twice a day and then gradually build. Uh, and it, it won't seem like it's a stretch, like it's really it's just something you can't do. Uh, and in that way, you'll start gaining assurances, mm-hmm. self-assurance that you can do it. And instead of me saying, all right, you start with one hour every day. <laughs> I don't know anybody that's ever been able to do it. And because you think you have to do it, you'll just give it up, which you should, because people shouldn't teach meditation that way. It's my opinion. Um, and study the website. Start on the welcome page if you haven't already, because that'll point you to different directions to go in. Uh, and continue to join us in class. We, we're here Saturday <coughs> mornings and Tuesday evenings, and I teach a Thursday afternoon class. Primarily for people that are overseas, but people here join when they can as well. So, but welcome to our sangam. We're all glad to have you. Uh, let's go online. I want to talk to Anthony first and see why he jumped off that bicycle like that. <laughs> well, um, thank you, John. First of all, I remembered who the host of Wonderama was because first the name Bob came to me, Bob McAllister. And wasn't the other uh, Sandy Fox? Wasn't the other guy Sandy Fox? That I don't remember. I think it was. But, um, and, I, and I know why other people don't know about this show, because that was a um, TV show that was on, well, what today would be called Fox, Channel, right, 5. Channel 5. But then it was called WNEW. And anybody that was Clinton and North would get it, but anybody south of Clinton would only get the Philly stations. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And we only had three stations back then, right? Uh, well, I fought, no, the local ones were five, eleven, nine, and then, oh, yeah, then, then that uh, two, two, four, and seven. Yeah. And then UH, UHF with Uncle Floyd and the Spanish station. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you couldn't watch. We weren't allowed to watch Uncle Floyd. He was, he was the devil incarnate. I just couldn't get it. <laughs> I couldn't get it where I lived. Yeah. So what do you but, think um, about this I, class, I, Anthony? I, I mean, it's perfect because. 
it's what I've been doing for the last three weeks, which is, you know, trying to not take my bodily feelings and my emotions personally and uh, understanding that um, this is a time and this is a time that we do these things for moments like this where you really need to draw on them. You know, I've been leaning heavily on 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 that and and also a lot of gratitude, um, you know, towards my wife, towards the fact that it could have been so much worse um, towards the daily improvements instead of, you know, the pain and, and, and leaning heavily on meditation and it's all been so helpful. And without, without constantly making these deposits into the bank, you know, you won't have it when times get tough. And, And so I've been drawing very heavily on this and I, and I, and it was a perfect one for me to come in on. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. It is it, um, heightened experiences of pain have a way to sharpen your dharma practice, doesn't it? You remind <laughs> yeah. me of something. I don't think I've ever. I don't think I ever told the. I don't think I ever told that. It. It's not a deep dark secret. It's just something that happened, and I kind of forgot about it. But yeah, when I broke my hip, I think it was two or three days after, but I was still a little bit hazy, um, and I was laying flat in the in the bed and. And I was meditating. I, mean, I, wasn't, I was meditating a lot because there wasn't much to do, you know. And I came out of the medita- meditation because I felt a nurse checking my pulse. She thought I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I opened my eyes and she kind of jumped too. <laughs> that is another unintended benefit that meditation, regular meditation, lowers your heart rate tremendously. Yeah. Well, I, I, You're yeah. all amazed when they take my heart rate and they're like, well, how can you be in the high 40s? Yeah, you know, well, it's I mean, like it's was, unusual, but it that that is one of the benefits of meditation. Yeah, she, I mean, she was really concerned too. I guess she was having trouble finding it. I don't know. But I, and again, I felt the touch and I opened my eyes. It wasn't like you know I was laying there for a long time. But one of the benefits of meditation: nurses think you're dead. Brian, how are you? <laughs> uh, not dead. So good. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm, I'm not dead. Um, yeah. Right? This one um, it just made me think that, you know, this is the heart of the, the self-referential feedback loop. Yep. Um, and, and for me, realizing, you know, what's happening at a, a more mechanical, call it scientific level, that, that what we're actually calling our senses is just the interpretive piece. They're, they're just the electromagnetic waves hitting us, right? Like there's, there's yeah. no, there's no... Hitting electromagnetic waves. Yeah, there's no smell, there's no sound. Like that's just us interpreting wavelengths. Yeah. And and having that understanding has made it easier to A identify the clingy event and B letting it go. Is it, it there's just no inherent value in any of it. That's right. And it's just it's constantly washing over us regardless. Whatever it is. Why, why take it personally? Yeah. So Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, Brian. Again, we're Carl Sagan used to say we're all star stuff, and we are. We're the, you know, the all the elements that make up me. They're not me, are they? they? I mean, they can't be. I had nothing to do with them. the 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 point of the Buddhist Dhamma is: where do we find ourselves? I find myself here. You know, <laughs> or do you find yourself everywhere else but here? Mary, how are you? Hi, John. Hello, everybody. Good morning. 
Um, I was thinking of Anthony through a lot of this morning's talk because I thought how relevant it is when you're going through a crisis of sorts. Um, So I'm glad you're on the mend and impressive memory recall about television stations in New Jersey. So so your brain is in good shape, Anthony. (laughs) Yeah, I'm challenging myself. Thanks, Mary. Um, But I think that all of this work, um, the consecutive, um, the continuity that you're creating through the the positioning of the um, each of the steps here, not steps, but four foundations of mindfulness, I mean, uh, uh, four foundations and then five cleaning aggregates and, and so on and adding on to it, 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 it creates a, uh, if you're listening, it creates a level of understanding of the depth of the self-referential behavior that is within all of us. And so really understanding that and where that takes us, which is contrary to what we're studying, um, is the opportunity that I think we have here. Is really, at least for me, understanding how, like I don't think any of us think of ourselves as you know self-serving, self-referential, but to understand in an impersonal way that that's kind of how we're built, and yep. then to learn to recognize it, um, you know, through heightened concentration um, off the cushion is how we get to that inner poise. So yeah. all of this yeah. is the the building of the framework for becoming that in, you know, having that inner poise. So thank you, John, yeah. for the teaching. Thank you, Mary. That was really a great explanation of that. Um, well, let's go to Dr. Kevin. Hello, everybody. Um, John, thank you for this teaching. Um, it's just, um, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta is so foundational, and it just explains the Dhamma bit by bit, and it, it, it sort of fleshes it out, so it's a different way of understanding it. And then it brings in dependent origination, yep. you know, our sixth sense base leads to feelings, leads to clinging and craving craving and cleaning and uh it's just one extra one more place in that chain that you can um, stop dependent origination um so um thank you for bringing it out thank you for for mentioning that kevin yeah the dependent origination states that from ignorance of four noble truths through 12 observable causative links suffering arises and dependent origination not something we have to memorize Many people try to, and it's uh, it's a it's a little obscure until you finally understand where we're going with this. But it just says, "From ignorance comes suffering." Uh, Kevin, the other Kevin. Good morning, John. Um, is it okay if I call you the um, other Kevin? Can you hear me? Can yes, hear me? I said, "Is it okay if I call you the other Kevin?" Yes, it is absolutely. <laughs> um, I am definitely not a doctor, so <laughs> maybe uh, it might be Kevin the Third now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We got a we have a, a teacher here whose name is Kevin, but it's good to see you again, Kevin. Good to see you. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I heard that the, uh, the retreat was wonderful. Sorry, I couldn't make it, but I have been practicing. Um, right. You know, thirty minutes in the morning and in the, the evening as well. So um, that's outstanding. A couple things that I'll share is one: there's this wonderful. Bird <laughs> in here that uh, is just 
keeps bringing me right back to the now and it's not like there's an attachment or words associated with it but it just is like just this this wonderful thing that's keep popping in through today's class so um the other thing that i noticed was this beautiful meditation was able to kind of get to this very still place and if i think about a metaphor of like this little stream where it's calm on top but at the very bottom i had these thoughts um, i'm a musician and so i kept having these like just these musical thoughts that were just popping up. I've been playing a lot of it in COVID the past week and I've been practicing. And so there wasn't an attachment. There wasn't like an association with it, but it was just this awareness, even though my mind was very, very clear and, you know, there was no, it was very present, but there was this underlying current that, that is there. Right. And, and, and it's just, so there's an awareness that that is probably there all the time, even though I don't recognize it and yeah. much thought to it, but that there is this, um, Again, it's not attachment. There's no sense of I associated with it. It's almost like I look at it as being this instrument of, of something, some kind of energy that's flowing through me. But that's that's where I'm showing up today. Is that there was just this clear awareness that there's some underlying other thoughts, even though I can be very peaceful and really kind of in this deep meditation, that there's this underlying current still present there. So thought I'd show that. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I'm so glad you joined us today. Is that is that Deb that's not on screen or Jane or someone else? It's Deb. It's Deb? Hey, Deb. How do you go with Deb? Yeah. It's not his turn. It's definitely not his turn. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Ron, how are you? I'm good. Deb, if you want to... Is that something else? Did I get everyone there? What's oh, that? Oh, Mateo. Oh, yeah. Mateo. Well, I forgot Mateo. Yeah. Hi, Mateo. Sorry about that. I know. I want to take another silence, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you joined. How you doing, Mateo? We haven't, haven't uh, seen you in a little while. Yeah, it's good. All good. All good, yeah. yeah all right. Thanks. I'll see you soon. Yep, yep. Tell my teacher Ron. How you doing? Uh, thank you for teaching this so clearly. Satipatthana mm. um, Sutta can easily... Um, be seen as a just a, a number of lists, uh, things you know, things to do, uh, things to be aware of, but <clears throat> just relates so clearly to life and practice, mm. uh, and uh, you, you put it right there. Thank you. Thank you. I just this is Mark. I didn't get Mark on camera. Say hello to Mark. Hi, Mark. <laughs> I'm a teacher, Jen. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm just going to echo what Ron said. It was really crystal crystal clear tonight. Nice job, John. Finally. Good. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. I'm a teacher, David. I'm good, Jen. Thank you. Thanks, David. So um, we'll continue this, uh, this series of classes. Um, I think Jen is teaching again on Tuesday, mm -hmm. and then we'll conclude the section on the Satipatuna. Satipatuna. <laughs> I think I'll have a tuna sandwich for lunch. No, it's a, what is it? What was the thing that it turned into? Some salty potato. The salty yeah, potato the, sutta. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue with the salty potato sutta uh, until we get hungry for tuna, and then we'll substitute the sata. Can you some bacon there, please? Yeah. Ah, oh, the sata patuna sutta with bacon. Good. Oh, it's salty potato. You got to get a little silly sometimes. It's good for it's good for the brain, good for the mind. Uh, we'll continue this at some point or not. 
<laughs> and permanence <laughs> might intervene, and, and we won't be, but it's our intention to uh, establish a little bit of permanence and, and keep moving forward. Uh, keep practicing uh, in accordance with the Dhamma, and you'll keep developing the benefits that we talk about all the time. Uh, and we'll finish with uh, Metta, as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Thank you. Peace. Thanks, John. See you all soon. Hey, everybody. Keep healing, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. You Bye-bye. have any plan? I know you're probably not going to be traveling anytime soon, but you have any plans of coming up here? Yes. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to be around in October, and I'm trying to figure out a way that I could make a meditation class on a Tuesday night. Oh, that'd be great. We we may have a uh, a retreat going on then, a, a in-house retreat. So you might you might be here at a part of that too. So that'd be great. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a family reunion in Hershey, and I'm going to see if I could leave a day early so I can make it Tuesday night. That'd be great. I look forward to it. With the Tuesday night class, still, it's um, the middle of October. Yeah, we haven't set the date. We're going to set the date, I think, this Tuesday. So I'll let you know what okay. they are. We'll see how they work out. It'll, it'll probably be a Friday, Saturday, Sunday anyway, so you probably wouldn't make it. But I'll, we'll put it out there. Maybe you can. Okay. Keep healing, right. my friend. Take care, Tell Deb I said hello. I will. Thank you, John. It's good to see you. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.